This is an ABC podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese with you for the Hack Podcast. You know, every year tens of thousands of people go missing in Australia. Most of those do end up being found. But some don't. They stay missing. So who looks for those long-term missing people when investigators have done all they can and they have to move their resources to other cases? In a bit, you're going to meet a couple of YouTubers who travel around the country trying to solve cold case disappearances. And it works sometimes. They're finding remains years after people went missing, and then they're able to give closure to families who've been wondering what's happened to their loved ones for years. Also coming up, the gay glass ceiling. A guy's missing out on leadership jobs at work because they're not super masculine. First, though, start with something that might freak you out a little bit. Hack. We did ask ChatGBT to write an introduction for you, but unfortunately it couldn't find enough data on you just yet, but it also did not know who I was. On Triple Jack. Yeah, the media meltdown over ChatGPT is really quite something. AI, we love to talk about it here on Hack. We love to freak out about it. This tech in particular, though bit confronting maybe because it can seemingly do everything from songs to poems, exam responses. There's no denying they're getting better. Have you tried it out? Chat GPT. If you have, I want to know what you reckon. Or maybe you're too nervous to form a relationship with AI. You're just not ready to go there. Let me know. 0439757555. In a bit, we're going to get the rundown from an expert. But first... Nathan Nigidula breaks down exactly what ChatGPT is. As we step into the future, AI technology is rapidly changing the way we live our lives. From smart homes to self-driving cars, artificial intelligence is increasingly becoming integrated into our daily lives. But the impact of AI goes far beyond just our personal lives. It's revolutionizing industries, changing the job market, and transforming the way we interact with technology. Yeah. I have a confession to make. I didn't write that intro. It was written using artificial intelligence by a new computer program that's shaking up how we interact with technology. And as you just heard, it can basically write like a human. It's called the Chat Generative Pre-Trained Transformer, or ChatGPT for short. And it's a program that's fluent in a heap of different languages and computing code. My training data is based on a diverse range of internet texts, allowing me to generate human-like responses to a variety of questions on a wide range of topics. When you talk to it, it scans the text within your message for prompts, specific words, and tries to guess what you're saying. From there, it uses its large database to try and generate a response and keep the conversation going. This morning, I literally just asked it to write an intro to a news story about how AI is changing our lives. And within seconds, it gave you that pretty on-point intro. ChatGPT is a huge advancement in AI technology and is creating shockwaves not just in the industry, but across society. Is ChatGPT a jobs killer? Finally, to some sci-fi to launch the new year. It's called ChatGPT and it generates instant human-like text. ChatGPT can do everything from producing sophisticated computer code to writing academic papers. The company that developed it, OpenAI, recently partnered with Microsoft, who invested more than 10 billion US dollars into their company. People have been using it to type up business plans, write product descriptions, and even make art. Let's take a listen. Hi, 
honestly, this result was pretty impressive to me. Okay, maybe not fine art, but it can help you write up assignments just fine. And that's where it's getting tricky. Plagiarism, mansplaining. There's a few negatives to this software too. States like Queensland, New South Wales, Western Australia and Tasmania have even banned its use in schools until they can review its safety. I really contest the idea that we just have to get on with contending with this new technology that's been foisted upon us. It's up to the universities to make the learning and teaching more engaging um, and to make assessments that students genuinely have to participate in um, and don't want to or can't use AI. Hack on Triple J. Nathan, you get all with that update. How are we feeling? Ready to pack it in and hand it order all over to the bots because we've got some people messaging in saying, yeah, we're interested in it. Not sure if we're completely sold. Alex in Melbourne, I'm a university researcher. I love the potential, but it makes up citations. Academically, it can't be trusted yet. Somebody else says, whatever happened to using a room full of monkeys with typewriters? Well, let's talk to someone who can tell us what to expect from chat GPT. Professor Toby Walsh is from UNSW. He's an expert in artificial intelligence and he's with me now. Hey, Toby, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Dave. On a scale of, I don't know, Tamagotchi to smartphone, how big is this technology, chat GPT? Is the breakthrough everyone's claiming or is it just another thing that we'll forget about in a few months? Uh, actually, smartphone, I think, is a good comparison. When I saw the very first demo, I was reminded of watching Steve Jobs demo the very first iPhone and thinking, this is going to change computing. This is going to be the new way we're going to interact with computers. I mean, the first smartphone was still a bit clunky, and this still is a bit clunky, as, as you already said. It makes stuff up. It invents things. Um, there are a few things that need to be fixed, but I think it's the beginning of a new way that we're going to start having conversations with computers and stop trying to tell the tell them you know individual instructions. So what for you is the most impressive thing about this particular technology that sets it apart? They've made it really accessible and they've made it a bit more focused. And um, we, we've had chatbots since the 60s. Um, and there have been a few others that have come along since then. But they've really put a lot of work into making it quite capable and also quite accessible. It's quite easy to sign up for. Um, and it does mostly what you ask it to do. Previous chatbots have tended to, to be a bit vague and wander off and do other things. But but this one is pretty well focused on what you want it to do. We're speaking with Professor Toby Walsh from UNSW about artificial intelligence and big breakthroughs that have been happening over the past few months and years. I want to go to a caller, though. Grace is on the line. Grace, you're saying your boss is obsessed with chat GPT. What's what's the go there? How obsessed? Oh, super obsessed. And has it running all of the time. Um, yeah, he, he put us all in to show us when he learnt about it. Um, and it was quite daunting in the, in the sort of um, PR industry that I'm in. Um it's making some of us quite nervous. I can imagine. So, Grace, you're already feeling the nerves about the potential future of your career because your boss is so excited by this technology. You're probably thinking, no, don't be <laughs> don't be too excited. We'll go back to Professor Toby Walsh. Professor, what industries do you reckon are going to get the most use out of this kind of AI? It's hard to predict exactly, but it's. I think I should imagine if you're working in right, I don't know, ad, right, writing advertising copy, um, in a call center. I mean, call center people work often have to read from a script. Well, this is much better than reading from a script. 
Um, if you're doing anything that's really dull and re repetitive and routine, then I think you should be a little nervous. Someone says on the text line, I was having a hard time with my mental health and used chat GPT as a therapist. It was remarkably helpful. That was Jane. Look, I'm not sure whether that's recommended. I wouldn't be out there um, asking people to go to a chatbot rather than an actual therapist. But hey, Jane's tried it. Someone else says... You know, ChatGPT is awesome, already aided me with code and has made me a lot faster coding. Another person says, I've used it to structure my work emails. I struggle to word things a certain way sometimes, but it helps a lot. What are the limitations with this kind of technology, Toby? Because I imagine there's some stuff that it can't do yet. Yeah, there's a couple of things it can't do. It, it's not really understanding what it's saying. It's just saying things that are very plausible. And lots of times that's enough. That's actually good enough. It is a little bit dated. They trained it up to 2021. That's when they started the training. So it doesn't know anything recent. It doesn't know um, that the Queen's died. It doesn't know various things like that. It doesn't know about the new government and things like this. Um, I'm sure that they, they're they be making it more up and to date. Indeed, there's GPT-4. The next iteration is coming anytime soon. That's supposed to be an order of magnitude bigger and will be even more capable. Um, but also, it doesn't have enough filters in it. it. Just sometimes makes stuff up and tells you it with great confidence. That's the man's planning um, that it say what it's saying is true, and it's um, just um, invented at some times. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese speaking with AI expert Professor Toby Walsh about ChatGPT. If you haven't heard about it, it's coming for you. Get ready. Got a lot of messages on the text line. Some people really loving the idea about it, saying, you know, there's um, good programs out there already. Others, one that uh, creates PowerPoints. It's created a PowerPoint for my cartooning class for next week. It thought of things I hadn't even thought about. But then we've got the other side, people saying no to AI. It's to dumb us down even more. Think about it. All education and minors will be too tempted to use it and they will literally learn shit all is what they said. Someone else, Alison Geelong, says, my techie husband proved it's better than him by getting it to write a love letter to his wife. <laughs> um, that's an that's a interesting way to use it. Do you reckon, um, Toby, this is going to be a nightmare for schools and unis? Like we're already seeing the bans come in place. Nathan was talking about that earlier. Is that just going to get a whole lot more complicated? It is. I mean, these bans aren't really going to work because uh, they're stopping access to this particular website on the school network. You know, anyone can just open their phone or uh, open a VPN and it'll get around that. That So that's not really going to work. There are some tools that tries to recognise this, this, the writing that these that these chatbots produce, um, but that's going to be a continuing arms race. I, I don't know if I should tell you, but it's easy enough to, to get around those tools. Um, Turn it in is not doesn't work on it because it's it's not actually plagiarizing. It's not copying text that you can actually find somewhere on the internet. It is writing similar sentences, but they're synthesized afresh. Um, so turn it in doesn't work with it. Um, so if you are um, you know a little knowledgeable about technology, it's easy enough to get through the the programs that are spotting uh, synthetic computer written text.
You know, we've got some um, uh, teachers messaging in now who are saying they're actually using it to help them. They're saying, I'm using it to help come up with creative ideas for lesson activities, alternative assessment tasks, unit planning, those kinds of things. I guess what it is going to mean is that we're going to have to adjust how we assess students, right? Rather than a final essay or answer, it's going to be more about showing your workings and how you reach that. Maybe that's where we're going next. What do you think, Toby Walsh, we can expect in the years ahead? Like, do you think it really is going to be everyone using this kind of technology every day and not thinking about it? Yeah, I mean, Microsoft is one of the big backers. They just put another 10 billion into OpenAI, the company that's built this chatbot. So you're going to find it in all of Microsoft products. So every time you're using Word or Outlook to write an email, it'll be waiting there. Every time you're using Excel to write a spreadsheet, it'll be helping you suggest formulae. Um, so it's going to be ubiquitous and it's going to make our lives much simpler. I mean, I'm never going to write another business letter. That TPT <laughs> is writing every one of my business letters. And probably those businesses are never going to reply personally to my my complaint letters. They're going to be using GPT to reply. So um, it is going to, you know, no one ever liked writing business letters, I reckon. So that's going to make our lives a bit better. You can actually use it to mark exams. So, so students can, uh, stu- um, teachers can use it to, to save themselves all that correcting. Um, so there's lots of things you could do, but you're right. Ultimately, I think we're going to use, uh, look at how we assess people differently. Um, at the university here, we're, we're looking at doing a lot more oral examinations. If you really want to understand whether someone understands the topic, you have a conversation with them about it and you can probe them and, and ask them you know, questions on the fly that, that they can't cheat about. Or as Ray says, you can just put a checkbox on the assignment that says, I'm not a robot. Fill in all of the boxes that are bridges or whatever you have to do all the time. Those annoying ones. Somebody else says, um, can it write me a Tinder bio? Well, people, are, people are already using it to write Tinder bios. Okay. All right. That's proven already. It, it, it can, uh, there's many people that's written a much better Tinder bio, I'm sure, and got them a date they'd never have gone on. So many people logging on right now to update their profiles. I can see it happening. Professor Toby Walsh from UNSW. Um, I don't know whether I feel better or worse after that discussion, but very much appreciate you coming on and filling us in. My pleasure. As one friend put it, my voice is all treble, no bass. I would say I'm mistaken for a woman on the phone 98% of the time. On Triple J. Hey, I've got a question. If you're a gay man, do you ever try to make yourself sound more masculine? Maybe you're always doing it, or you only do it in some situations, like if you're at work or you're around specific family members. Because some fascinating new research is out that suggests, yeah, there's a masculine bias out there among both straight and gay men, and it's likely having an impact on careers, promotions, a whole bunch of stuff. If you can relate to this, I want to know. Also, if you're a queer woman, if you're non-binary, do you ever feel like you need to act more feminine? Let me know. You can call in 1300 0555 You can message in as well, 0439 Like I said, the research is really, really interesting and I've got the study's lead author, Ben Gerard, from the University of Sydney with me now. Hey, Ben, thanks Hello. for coming on Hack. Thanks for having me. Can you explain how this study worked? What was the kind of experiment that you did? The experiment was I created um, a mock or fake ad campaign. So we were casting um, for a TV commercial that didn't really exist for a tourism campaign in Sydney. And the brief was that we wanted to have a wide representation of people from the community to attract 
visitors to Sydney. And as part of that, we wanted to cast a gay man amongst those. And so my participants who were straight men and gay men from around Australia were asked to pick one from six people auditioning to, for their favourite. And we kind of asked them that what we want you to pick is we want you to pick a guy who is you see as a leader, someone the audience is going to admire, look up to, an ambassador for the community. And I got the same six actors to uh, record the, an identical script, um, a bit more masculine and then a bit more feminine. And then uh, at the end I was able to compare... Uh, whose which videos got the most, which were the masculine ones. Right. So it was really clear there that um, there was this masculine bias, but it's present in gay men as well, which is interesting, right? But I guess people might be familiar with this if they think about other areas like dating or like I'm talking about gay men here, maybe on hookup apps or something, they might be encountering this every day anyway. Definitely. So I think there was a body of research before me that kind of explored that um, effect, that, that sort of um, no um, mask for mask kind of culture in dating apps. And in so in sort of like sexual attraction, that was research has sort of explored that a lot more. But I was kind of really interested in hmm, like the impacts of this bias outside of the bedroom in the real world and in people's social status. Do we know why the bias exists? So uh, basically there is uh, this kind of association between masculinity and being a good leader. Uh, we associate um, high status with masculinity and uh, so that there's one thing there. And then on the other hand, there is this association between gayness and femininity. Um, and that has negative, has accrued and acquired some negative connotations in, um, you know, culture and history. And those two things are kind of banging up each other as a double whammy for feminine presenting gay men. They're both, they've got like uh, that um, sense that um, masculinity is more appropriate for leadership. And they also have this kind of stigma uh, against being gay and being seen as feminine and feminine being seen as weak and not capable of effective leadership. And so in workplaces, it's likely that there are gay men out there who are maybe choosing people for promotions themselves mm. with these biases in mind and like continuing on these um, these ideas. I yes, this was what I suspected before I did the study, and uh, and what was really interesting before I did the experiment was that I had people telling me, no, 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 you're crazy, you're crazy, it's not a thing, it's not a thing, and uh, the experiment results suggest otherwise and now that those results have come out I'm hearing more and more uh, people kind of concede that they might have the bias themselves a bit or they've definitely been on the brunt end of it you know like we talk about oh have you ever put on being more masculine but actually that's a lot harder to do for some people not everyone's as good at that as others and likewise faking masculinity has its own kind of consequences and costs on a person's mental health and yeah just to be able to get ahead. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese, speaking with researcher Ben Gerard about this study into, you know, biases out there that exist, masculine bias. Um, we've got messages coming through. Somebody says, I'm a cis woman. I work with tradies and engineers. I find myself speaking at a lower, deeper tone to men at work. Otherwise, I don't get taken seriously. That was Mel. Another person says, I definitely do. I feel more comfortable talking more mask around people who don't understand the gay community. And another person says, uh, gay man here, definitely think the pressure to sound mask exists. Let's go to a caller now. Jeremy is on the line. Hey, Jeremy, what's been your experience? 
Hey, what's up? Firstly, I want to give a shout out to Ben if it's the same actor um, on ABC. But anyway, um, <laughs> is, is that the same bloke? Oh, could be. Um, <laughs> could be. Yes. Um, anyways, yeah, so I'm a, I'm a bi cis man and I work and study in healthcare. And I often find that in order just to be taken seriously, I kind of have to lower, I have a naturally high voice, but I have to, you know, be a bit... Uh, and a bit more assertive and mask, I guess, if you want to put it like that. Interesting. All right. And do you see it carrying around, like carrying over into other parts of your life as well? Yeah. Um, I think dating is, I think you've already mentioned it, but the whole like mask for mask culture is pretty, pretty horrible, to be honest. And especially when you're bi and there's this internalized like birasia and biphobia, um, it makes it really, really difficult. Yeah, for sure. And Jeremy, we're getting a lot of messages uh, saying very similar things to you. Um, hey, I mean, your impersonation there with the, I mean, that's, <laughs> I don't know whether that's what you're doing at work, but um, no, thanks so much for calling and really appreciate your take on that. I want to know, Ben, like the bias is definitely there, like, and especially in the media as well. Like I've seen it a hundred times, like they call it gay voice or they used to in the media and yep. people being told you don't have a future as a broadcaster because you sound too gay. It sounds like that's kind of changing now and people are starting to get jobs and able to be themselves, you know, in the media, broadcasting, doing all kinds of things. Are things changing? Uh, definitely. Little things like that are making a big difference. I think that that's the best thing that could be happening is um, just being more aware and making sure we do have a more diverse range of um, queer identities and gay presentations um, represented across media. Uh, I think in my own background uh, as an actor, I've, I've, I've come into contact with this whole notion of being too gay to play gay. <laughs> so especially what when... What is it, that? <laughs> it's, so it's like this kind of phenomenon where um, uh, you see constantly the big uh, romantic leading man gay characters when the, the very few of them that exist um, going to straight actors and often there has been a problem in, uh, at certain points where this has been at the hands of gay directors, gay writers, gay casting directors and um, and so this is what brings me into this kind of shame idea of that we don't want to be represented when we see we when we see ourselves on screen gay men become complicit in this kind of fantasy of uh, us being inauthentically presented as uh, more masculine than we authentically really are so but you were seeing this quite often as an actor and that's what got you into this research it was one of the reasons yeah so it was quite often I would see I'd be I'd be brought in to audition for a role and it would go a lead role would go to a straight actor and then I they'd come back with a really, really over-the-top stereotypical um, uh, reductive kind of supporting role or a guesty 50-worder, um, and that was kind of this sort of like, oh, I'm too gay to play gay. Well, so. hey, look, <laughs> it's, it's incredible research. You can find all the details online. We very much appreciate you coming in to explain this. Researcher, actor Ben Gerard, thanks so much for your time and coming in to Hack. Thanks for having me. Hack. I have found a firearm underneath a bridge. You find all sorts of things, knives and guns and all sorts of weird and wonderful things under the water. On Triple J. Right now, there are two YouTubers travelling around Australia looking for missing people. It might sound a bit weird, but these two specialise in solving cold case disappearances. They go looking for people's remains years after authorities have had to give up searching. And it's working. Earlier this month, they found the body of a man who's been missing for more than six years. Our Tassie reporter April McLennan caught up with these guys on one of their searches to see what it's all about. I'm just with Bill and we're walking down the main street of Sheffield. Bill, what's this town kind of known for? 
murals. The whole town is covered in it. All these murals on every corner, on every brick building, and then it has a mural park. But it also has a dedication to a missing person, which is Nicola Solis. And, and this is, you know, it, it, it says on it, Dad came to Australia from Italy as a young man, aged around 21. He was a real giver who loved his family and always tended to think of others before himself. And that's, you know, that's what it's all about. We're, we're trying to bring Nicola home because he always thought about others and uh, we don't want to have him be forgotten. I met with Bill McIntosh at the Sheffield Bowls Club in Northern Tassie. And for a local girl like myself, it's a pretty hot day. So I can't help but smirk when I see Bill in his beanie and puffer jacket. He's from West Kingston, Rhode Island in the US. Standing next to Bill is Down Under Dan from the Blue Mountains in New South Wales. He's wearing shorts, a tee and a very worn Akubra hat. So I met Bill when I spent a month with Adventures with Purpose in the United States. They are a search and recovery team. Over the last two years, they have found 27 people um, and returned them home to their loved ones. The pair have temporarily joined forces to try and find missing people around Australia. Can you talk me through what's going on over here? <laughs> There's a lot going on over here. So um, this is Dan's setup. We, we have kayaks, uh, refrigerator for food, Dan has power to this system so he can power up all batteries, uh, has the ability to run showers in here so that he can stay out in the field for up to four weeks and be self-sufficient. He can live like an animal. Well, it's funny <laughs> you say he can live like an animal because this is a horse float, Dan. Yeah. My, my wife actually brought this for me for my birthday. Um, one of the struggles I always had if I was just putting the stuff in the car, I'd always leave something at home. So. She brought me this horse float for me to put all my gear in. And just to describe what's going on here, so we've got a horse float attached to a vehicle. There's kayaks on the roof hanging off the side. Inside the horse float is a bunch of search equipment as well as a kettle, some chicken salt by the looks of it. <laughs> Shower out the back and on the back of the horse float, still a sticker that says caution horses. But right next to that is a poster of Nicola Elise, a missing poster. And Nicola Solis is, is suffering from early onset dementia. His kids were taking away the car because he had had two accidents and they were selling his house. And so he had lived there for 27 years with his kids and his wife. And so it was a tough time for him. Nicola was last seen in 2008, driving his car down a road in Sheffield. A coroner has declared that Nicola is dead, but neither his car nor his body have ever been found. But Bill and Dan are now on a mission to help find him, and they've agreed to let me join them on their search for the day. So we're at the Kentish Park boat ramp. What are you guys doing at the moment? So we're setting up the transducers um, and the sonar on the boat and the electric motor so that Dan can go out and sonar this boat ramp, that boat ramp over there, and that boat ramp here. This is, there's three boat ramps that are accessible. They've chosen to search this body of water because it's only about 10 or so minutes from Nicola's house and they need to make sure he's not here. So the different types of sonar that we've got here. So the top screen is what you would call size scan. So it's what you go over and it looks out 30 metres that way, 30 metres that way. The down scan is exactly what's below us. Can you talk me through what he's actually doing at the moment? So what Dan is doing is He's doing a full loop around to one boat ramp to the other, making sure that nothing could float out. And the organization that I'm with, Adventures with Purpose, 
has seen everything from finding a person uh, on the edge of a river on a dangerous corner to right behind their house in a, in a body of water to under a piling to under a dock to at a dam where trees are jammed against it where you can't find it to docks like this where trees are jammed against the car and, and it's hidden. After paddling around the boat ramps, Dan returns to the shoreline. Unfortunately, Nicola isn't here. The boys have cleared this area, so it's time to move on to the next location. Bill and Dan are looking for other people too, and a couple of weeks ago, they found one. A man who'd been missing just north of Hobart for more than six years. They discovered Dale Nicholson's body in a car in the River Derwent. What was that moment like for you when you did find Dale? Uh, it was a little surreal. You look in, you see human remains, and it's... Okay, well that's the need to get I, the number played off. We need to uh, contact police. So it's very a focus kind of thing. So it's not till later where you really sit back and, and contemplate what you've you've seen. And how does it feel for you being able to bring someone's loved one home? It's a great relief. I can't even start to comprehend what these poor people have gone through. It's just nice for me to know that they don't have to drive past a body of water, or they don't have to drive around wondering anymore. Hack on Triple J. April McLennan with that story and so many messages from people who are really just blown away by the generous generosity of those guys who are out there trying to bring closure to families across the country. Look, that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'm going to be away over the next couple of days, but it's all good. You've got Ange McCormack jumping in the chair. She's going to be filling in, has a lot of great stories for you, so make sure you stay tuned over the next few days. I'll be back with you for the shake-up at the end of the week. Catch you then. Bye.